So this then is our last look. Uh, we spent the month of August just looking at aspects of sin, different metaphors uh, the Bible gives us. Uh, so this is our last look at tonight. Uh, and uh, the picture is a highly emotive, uh, evocative one. Uh, that's the picture that uh, we get given here in Hosea of adultery. Let's, let's pray. open up these words to us and, and bring life to us. Father, the contours of your word are incredibly rich in this last month as we've thought about the ways you describe sin, which multiple, multiple ways. We need them all because we need to understand how it is that we relate to you and what you think of it. So Father, as we come to this issue, this way you describe the way your people treat you as adulterers, Father, that will be instantly painful for some who have known that. Maybe very alien to others of us here, but would we understand it rightly so that we respond rightly to, to you, the one who is sovereign, almighty, but who loves us so very, very deeply. Would you work that within us this evening, we pray. Amen. Uh, in many ways, I think my father is a great man. Uh, I love him dearly, uh, I have enormous respect for him. Uh, the way he cared for my mother, the way he brought up a family, the way he has worked hard and taken wise decisions. I have enormous respect for my father and he's worthy of it. But the sense of he's a, it's just about to turn 80. And so I guess you say he's a man of his generation. He doesn't readily express his feelings or emotions, not like a younger generation which is a bit more hard on sleeve tell everyone everything on Facebook and what's going on in their lives. There's much more of a, a cultural reticence for a man of his age. So do you think that the times when he has expressed himself emotionally, they, they stick out in my head. Twice I've seen my father cry. Once was at the funeral of his father, my granddad. He was a very strange man in many ways. But when my dad explained to me afterwards why he loved his father so much, or tears to his eyes. The second time I related to my mum and I crashed his car and dad was exasperated in the first time. Uh, and he was expressing his exasperation. I was a teenager. He was expressing his exasperation. He said, but the problem is I just can't stay angry with your mother for very long because I love her so much. <laughs> okay. I think to my mind, those are the two occasions I've seen him cry. The two where he's really expressed how he feels about something. Normally do that. Because they stand out. There's a sense in which when you come to this book of Hosea, it's like one of those moments. God expresses himself very deeply how he feels. I mean, of course, that's throughout the whole of Scripture. Push this too far, but the, the language that he uses here of being injured hurt personally by how we treat him is deeper here than anywhere else in the Old Testament. I think the only place in the Bible you compare it to is, is the words of Jesus himself when he's explaining how he feels about sin. It's very expressive, very open, honest that the Lord, uh, the, the language of the Lord in Hosea explaining how he loves his people 
deeply. He cares profoundly about how we live. He knows what we do intimately and it pains him when it's sinful. Special about coming to this book, the, the depth of emotion it reveals from the living God. Because the dominant metaphor here is that sin is adultery. The Lord is a husband who loves his people. And when we sin, he views it as adultery. It's not just a legal mistake that made, it's not just he's a Officer of the court, he must punish those who have misbehaved. But if it hurts, I dare to use that language, him. Very personal. Sin is, in the book of Hosea, adultery. Does someone know that? Or someone of that? In your own family, in your own marriage, the sense of betrayal. You see it in your parents or someone else in your family. It is an emotive picture that the Lord gives. And I hope you can, no matter what background or, or how you approach this, what are your own histories in regard to that, this language will be helpful for us in understanding that sin is not a matter of indifference for the Lord. It is personal to him in this book of Hosea. We're only going to look at this uh, first chapters 1 and 2 today. Uh, chapter 1 verse 1 places the action in around 750 uh, BC. That's the reigns of those kings there. Uh, we're in Israel, that is the northern kingdom. Around 200 years earlier, Israel, uh, the United Kingdom, had split into Israel and Judah. Just in the northern kingdom of Israel here, around about uh, 750. And actually, life in Israel was going wonderfully well. Uh, abundant harvest, population boom. This is some great prosperity and affluence. There's the two problems that the book goes on and on about, uh, looming in the background. They're castigated for two reasons. Uh, I guess you sum them up as fertility and security. Fertility, everything is going well, there's abundant harvest, but the people are saying, Oh, the pagan gods, the pagan gods, they've given us all these wonderful harvests. And God says, no, they have not. Don't run off with them. I'm the one who's giving you all these things. This issue of where fertility has come from. And the other issue is security. There's this issue looming in the background of Assyria. Assyria is the great superpower of the day. And they're a little bit worried about Assyria invading. And so the nation of Israel keep making treaties with the other pagan nations, like Egypt. And God says, why are you... You shouldn't do that, I told you not to do that. Just trust me. Just trust me for your security, you don't need to make a, a treaty with Egypt. And so in the end, the punishment for their uh, grant of fertility to these pagan gods and worshipping foreign gods and uh, making deals with foreign nations, those are the issues for them. What happens is in the year, about, well, over a period of time, but certainly by the year 722, a series of these names are destroyed. So that's what's going to go on. That's the sort of backdrop to what's going on here. If you read through the, the book of Hosea, this cycle goes three times. And I put it there on the sheet. There's an accusation of uh, adultery 
or sin from the people. There's a threat. Look, if you carry on like this, I will judge you. But then thirdly, there's a promise of reconciliation. You get that chapters 1 to 3, 4 to 11, 12 to 14. This cycle goes round uh, three times. But in this first section, Hosea, the prophet, God says, okay, I want you to act it out. So, your marriage, Hosea, you'll take a wife who will be unfaithful. You will reject her, but you'll get reconciled with her. I want the people to see a picture in front of them of how they treat me. So that's what you get in uh, this, uh, this chapter. Now this picture of God being a, a, a husband or a groom and his people being a bride, this one used a number of times in the Old Testament, becomes to be used again in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom on the day of Pentecost. He gets engaged. He's betrothed to his people. And at the end of history, we're told there's a marriage. Jesus married his people. I mean, this metaphorical language, of course, don't get sort of too caught up with it. That was one man, now a million, a million. It's a picture. It's a picture language of the concern that he as a husband has for his people. So it's a really, uh, very easy to translate what's said here in Hosea for us, uh, living this side of the work of Jesus Christ. Three things then. As I said, we'll just work through them. Uh, the Lord accuses of adultery. The Lord threatens with rejection. And then thirdly, the Lord promises reconciliation. So chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Dibim. She conceived and bore him a son. So there's a, there's a love you. Who'd be a prophet of God in the Old Testament? Some of them get a great deal. Okay, Hosea, I'm going to choose you to be a prophet. And what do you want me to do? Go and marry a wife who treats you really badly. The desk is already. And so that's what she does. That's right, that's what he does. Hosea marries a woman such as this. A woman who is going to be adulterous. And if you look at the, um, the picture that chapter 2 gives of her unfaithfulness, it's vivid language, isn't it? Golly, chapter 2, verse 2, the, the picture is really played out here. Rebuke your mother, she's not my wife, I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face, the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Golly, it's pretty miserable. This kind of wedding theatre at the moment, if you've been to uh, any weddings or many weddings, or uh, you had a wedding of yourself uh, and someone else. But if you get back to a wedding, and it's all, it's all a bit off because you don't really know the bride or the groom. You know one of the two. It's been a whirlwind romance, or um, they've met someone overseas and come back to the UK and bang, they're getting married. Whoa, who is she? Who is he? I've never met him. So come the wedding, everyone's very intrigued. What's the, put it this way, what's she like? What's the bride like? I've never even laid eyes on her. Uh, is she absolutely stunning? Oh, I've done it. Is she loaded down in money? I mean, what's she, is it true love? I mean, what's she going to be like? Is she funny? Is she, well, here's the wedding day for uh, Hosea. Everyone's going Who's Hosea marrying? He's a bit out of the blue. Spoke to him yesterday morning, he was just going to the post office, and now I knew he's marrying today. Golly, that was whirlwind. Anyway, what's, what's she like? Well, here's what she like. 
the uh, Hosea stood at the front of the church, and um, no one's on the organ because she doesn't come into a little organ voluntary, one of the classics. She comes into, not surprisingly, the stripper. You know, it's funny music for a bride to come into. But what's the dress like? Oh, no dress. Just the, the remnants of a boob tube across the middle, and what's left of a pair of denim shorts, and everyone's cool. It's a bit much for our wedding day. But in she comes, lipstick's painted on with a brush, and the rest of the makeup's done with a trowel, and she sort of sassays in, winking at all the other men, and you think, Golly, who is this woman? Anyway, they marry and go to the reception afterwards, and, um, it's all a bit inappropriate because before they even sit down for dinner, she sat on everyone. Any man that she sit on. Comes to the speeches, she yawns her way to her husband's speech. Boring! Calls out. Best man's speech, she just disappears, so I won't be bothered to listen to. You have to go out and get a drink from the bar afterwards. And she's on the floor with the barman having sex. And you think, that Hosea is married. What is she like? And the Lord says to Hosea, go and marry a woman like that, because that's how you treat me. I give you everything. I have given you all the prosperity you have in this land. I can give you security. I've given you affluence. I've given you all that you have. I've made you what you are. The first chance you have, you jump into bed with another. someone else, the first opportunity, not just once, repeatedly, this infidelity. You sleep with pagan gods, you think it'll give you more sun and rain and fertility. You sleep with pagan nations, you think that'll give you security and stop you being invaded. You're a whore, God says to his people. You're a whore. Very strong, isn't it, for God to say that? Very strong. They wanted, is, is that true of us? I mean, how could that be true of us? I mean, there must be some differences. Well, yes, we'll get to them. Um, Israel is unique in, in, in the whole of history. Israel as a nation has a relationship with God. No other nation before since has ever had such a thing as that. But the issue is still the same. It's the first commandment issue. You should have no other gods before me. So for you and for me, when we, when we grieve the Lord with our sin, when we're bored of him, find him boring, when we allow other things to become far more exciting and we set our affections upon them and he's just a very distant second place, it's the same issue is going on here. God could say, well, I've given you everything. Every gift you have. Every talent, every opportunity. Every happy coincidence of your life. I've given them all to you. And yet as soon as you find something else more titillating, you run off. You are unfaithful to me. The Lord is like a rejected lover. As one betrayed by his spouse. 
Um, like, I don't want to be cruel with this, this uh, the, the image that's given here or the metaphor, but uh, imagine your own marriage or that of your parents or some friends. And there's an accusation you've been unfaithful, haven't you? Yes. Are you sorry? No repentance here. It's not that God says, you've been unfaithful. These people say, yes, we're sorry, we have. We won't do it again. We, no, we're going to take this seriously. The Lord says, it's unfaithfulness. And again, and again, and again. It's like a marriage. The husband comes home and says to his wife, you've been unfaithful. And she says, yeah. Are you sorry? No. You were boring. I've gone for someone else. Anyway, you'll take me back, won't you? Attitude. So even for those of us who are here as, as, as believers, could say, well, I know. Yeah, look, I know I've been in a sin. The Lord could say, listen, you're in a pattern of sin. You've been in this pattern of sin for months, years. You didn't do anything about it. You just go on and on and on. Yeah, but you'll forgive me. That's what you do. Get on with it. You'll have me back. And the Lord says, yeah, but it, it hurts. It's wrong. I am betrayed when you act like that. The Lord feels sin personally against him. It is not a legal matter of indifference that you just need to sort out. It is personal. Question, do you, do we understand the depth of grief that God feels over our sin? It grieves him. The Lord accuses of adultery. Second thing, second thing then, the, the Lord rejects, sorry, the Lord threatens with rejection. The Lord threatens with rejection. Let's go back to uh, chapter 1. Uh, Hosea and Gomer are going to have three children. And they've got slightly odd names. You heard, you heard this week, did you do the, um, or that was in the end of last week? The, the voted the best joke that they ever preached. You will hear this. Comedian. You know, I tell you what gives children a bad name. Posh and Bex, they give children a bad name. Half a seven, da da da, Brooklyn, Romeo, ha. Anyway, I've had that funny joke at the end of a fringe, so. <laughs> if you didn't go. <laughs> You're a bad names, aren't they? You're a miserable names. I mean, quite apart from the fact that they, you know, uh, Jezreel, Lo Rachamah, Lo Amir, sound like elves from the Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> the names themselves, the meaning of the names, is awful. So, uh, verse 3. Uh, Isaiah married Gomer and she conceived and bore him a son. Jezreel. 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 That's the site of a massacre. So it says here, uh, the house of Jehu. Jehu is an outsider, a usurper, who completely wipes out the house of Ahab. Massacres anyone whose potential could be a monarch, their families, their friends. It is a massacre. It's a horrific scene in Jezreel. Jezreel is a stain on the national consciousness of, of, um, of the nation. It would be like having a child and calling him in the UK 19th century slave trade. Yeah. We got that wrong. 
That's a miserable part of British history. Don't ignore it. You're proud of it. You don't call your child 19th century slave trade. That's an awful thing. You don't call your child Jezreel. That's an awful thing. But you see his prediction of the future, verse 4. Call him Jezreel. Why? Because I will soon punish the house of Jehovah and the massacre of Jezreel. I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. I'll break Israel down the valley of Jezreel. I tell you what, call, call your child Jezreel because destruction is coming to you. Essentially, call your other baby and call it, I will be massacred. Because that's what's going to happen to you. That's a miserable name. Uh, verse 6, Gomer conceived again. You're not told, it's Hosea's at this point. Golly, what a miserable wife she was. But Gomer conceived again, gives birth to a daughter. Call her Lo Rachamah. Oh, as you see from the footnotes. Not loved. Not loved. He wants to grow up being called not loved. That's a miserable name. He's undoing of the fundamental well, we'll come to it in a moment. Not loved. And then again we get um, a third child again told not told it's Hosea. Verse eight. So in verse nine, another child. Lower me, not my people, and I'm not your God. He's an undoing of the fundamental promise of the Bible. The most simple promise there is throughout the Bible is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the one throughout the scriptures. It's the most fundamental promise God makes and he's saying no longer. Look, I love you, but I'm not a feeble husband. I don't just accept betrayal upon betrayal and just sort of lap it up. Don't do that. I am warning you. You carry on like this, you'll be cut off. Not loved. Not my people. Massacred. I am not a feeble lover. I, I, I was vaguely watching on Friday night, and my family was saying, my family, my in-laws, they were watching a period run parade game. It's meant to be the thinking man's down for now, I've never seen that either. It's not kind of my thing. Lots of people like it, I know. If it's your thing, good for you. Um, but I, so I, I was reading the book in the corner of the room and they were watching this thing. And to my mind, it appeared, I wasn't English, so please don't take offence. It appeared like dross to me. Um, but I guess the critics love it, so if you like it, good. Um, but I kind of, the gist of it, as far as I could tell, there's this husband, Edith Cumberbatch. Um, <laughs> Apparently. And there's a husband, and his wife is just grossly unfaithful to him. Obviously unfaithful to him. And runs off with another man. And then writes her husband a letter. I've decided I will return to you now. And he very pleasedly says, accept it. Because she comes back. Why don't you divorce her? His friend says, I can't, I can't do that. It's a feeble picture of a, a, a man in that setting. Well, but the Lord is saying here, I'm not a feeble husband. Israel, my people, you go whoring after other nations and other gods, and I'll reject you. I want divorce. Very striking. He threatens rejection. That is the prediction. 
pretty clear there, verse 5, as we've said, that in that day I'll break Israel's bow. Or in chapter 2, the very strong language. I mean, it's all picture metaphorical, of course, but just chapter 2, verse 3, I'll strip her naked, I'll make her like a desert, I'll not show love to my children, and so on. Well, this prediction comes true. In year 733 BC, uh, Assyria invades and destroys the army. In year 722, the capital of Israel is completely wiped out. The people are destroyed, massacred. They become not God's people and not loved by him. It happens. God's people are dragged off into exile. No longer the Lord's people. But that's not the end. So the Lord accuses of adultery. He threatens with rejection. Third and last thing. He promises reconciliation. Remember, this is the structure that goes through the whole of the, uh, the, whole of the book of Hosea. But he promises that there will be a future salvation. So we're in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. We pick up from verse 9. The Lord said, call him lower me because um, you're not my people, I'm not your God. Verse 10, yes. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it said you're not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Oh, it's not the end. And uh, if I can create a whole new um, theology here, here's what you might be called, what you might call the the irrationality of God's love. Makes sense. I guess we get um, uh, betrayal and accusation and rejection. I guess we get we get that. Remember, here's a Here's an adultery where the wife says, yeah, I've been unfaithful. Are you going to change? There's no repentance here. There's no, I've messed up. Can we have another go? None of that. Israel just says, yeah, deal with it. I'm unfaithful. How it is. And in spite of that indifference coming to him, the Lord says, I will love you. Let me try and uh, bring this a bit more. Look at the at chapter 2, how, to my mind, how illogical chapter 2 is. Follow the therefores with me. So in chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, essentially, you've been unfaithful. Let me pick up verse 5. The mother said, unfaithful, is conceived in a disgrace. Israel has said, I'll go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool, my drink. They've been unfaithful. Verse 6, therefore, I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she cannot find her way. That makes sense. She's been unfaithful, so I'll punish. Or verse 8. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the wine, who lavished on the silver, gold. They've used them to make fun gods, like Baal. Therefore, I'll take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it's ready, I'll punish. That makes sense. She's betrayed me, there'll be a punishment. And yet, verse 13. I'll punish Israel for the days she burned incense to the bar, she decked herself with rings and jewelry, she went after her lovers. But me, she forgot to declare the Lord. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. That doesn't make sense. She's treated me appallingly. She keeps going after other men. Therefore, I'm going to love her. I'm going to love her more than she's ever known before. I'm going to lavish my love upon her. It makes no sense for God to love his people when they're utterly indifferent and chasing after other gods. But he does. It's not normal. 
one of the, uh, the most vivid uh, cases I saw miserably adultery played out in front of me when I was a student at uh, a job in a restaurant. I did, the, the restaurant was run by a young couple in their 30s. And um, at the Christmas party uh, one year, it emerged, uh, most of us kind of knew that it emerged. The husband found out that the wife had been having an affair with another member of staff. And it was just horrible. He discovered it in front of, you know, 30 other people. Horrible to see. Because he couldn't emotionally work out where he was at. At one moment he was just literally curled up in a corner crying, rocking on a chair. And then two minutes later, he was with the lover. And he was a big lad and he was really, it took pretty much everyone to pull him off. And he was wailing and crying in a corner again. When you know betrayal, it hurts. And the wife says, yeah, I've been unfaithful with him because you're boring. And says that in front of your staff. That hurts. And that's what we do instinctively, naturally, as sinful people to God. But rather than reacting with fury or despair, he says, and now I love you. Now you'll really know what it means to be loved by me. I will love you despite your unfaithfulness. I will not let you go. I'm the Sovereign Lord. I will have you back. And so in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, you get a very, 23, you get a very beautiful picture. Let me read some of it. We didn't get to it. It's all of it. Chapter 2, verse 16. That day declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. I'll remove the name of the bars so that it's no longer with their names be invoked. I'll make their covenants. Dot, dot, dot. Verse 19. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness. You'll acknowledge the Lord. Oh, there's a day coming in the future when we'll get engaged again and I guarantee there'll be wonderful faithfulness there. There'll be a quality of marriage that we've not known before. Verse 21, in that day I'll respond, declares the Lord, I'll respond to the skies, I'll respond to the earth. Yes, there will be blessing of the material property. The Old Testament wraps the covenant up in. But verse 23, I'll plant it for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I call not my mother. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they'll say, you're my gods. Complete reversal. People are unfaithful, God says, I'm warning you. If you carry on like this, I will judge you, divorce you. That happens. And God says, but now, let's undo that again. Become my people. Become the ones I love. No only blessing. Wonderful reversal. As we, as we conclude, two things to take away. There's, I guess, a difference and a similarity for us living in the 21st century, uh, not in Israel, back in the 8th century BC. Here's the important difference. Why we are different from what they experienced back then. The difference is they had to go through this cycle. Accusation, rejection, but reconciliation. They had to go through that. For you and me, you don't have to go through the second. You and I don't have to face God's rejection. 
We can hear his accusation. He's been unfaithful. But then, no reconciliation with him. We don't have to face rejection. Because Jesus Christ did. So he was, sorry, he is and was the one who was broken in the valley of shame. So what happened when he died on the cross? He was massacred so that we would not be broken. He was the one who on the cross was not loved by his Father so that we could be loved. He was the one who was not God's people. He was the one who was cut off so that we can be God's people. It's wonderful verse, chapter 2, verse 23 of reversal. The New Testament quotes it on a couple of occasions, Romans 9 and 1 Peter 2, to say the Christians, Christians are, God says, my people and the ones that I love despite their unfaithfulness to me because Jesus Christ was rejected. So it is only by trusting in him trusting that he's taken rejection for us, that we can be betrothed, engaged, have a relationship of blessing with God now, that in the future, we can be culmination. There's a significant difference for you and for me. We're not in the 8th century BC. We're now not facing rejection. But there is a similarity at the same time. You can't help but read Hosea and realise the depth of God's love He is not a weak lover. He is not one who will just stand by while we're indifferent and don't care and and, and, and say, well, whatever. I know we just love God. Yeah, I know we love other things more than you. He doesn't stand by with indifference. But he acts in Jesus Christ. He is, in the rest of the book of Hosea, irresistible in his love. Unchanging, constant, all-knowing in his love. But the, the key similarity is he cares about our sin. He hates it. It pains him. But he cares so much for us he won't let us go. So when you read Hosea, you get to read the whole thing, but even just these first two chapters, the question is, Look, is this your God? Is this your God? You can't read Hosea and have a distant, aloof deity like Allah who doesn't care. There's a relationship in Allah, he's just raw power. He cares about everything, he doesn't care about their attitude. Obedience is the only thing. He's just raw power. He never reveals himself as one who loves, who cares, who's involved with his people. He's the God of Hosea, your God. The true living God is deeply involved, intimately. His life is inextricably linked with ours. As in a marriage. How he reveals himself. Never more so than when he becomes a man. And dies. Not just to express love but to achieve a love that achieves reconciliation with him. It is extraordinary that God would reveal himself to us as a wounded lover. Isn't that extraordinary? It's 
you look at this nature of sin, sin is adultery. Look, if you've never done so, return to him. Yet profess faith as a Christian. Look at this thing, return to him. He hates your sin. But he loves you, he's paid for your sin in Jesus Christ. Return to him, please. But for those of us who are here who call ourselves Christians, look upon this God of Hosea. And don't forget the passion with which he loves us, the, the jealousy with which he loves us. You cannot be indifferent to your sin when you see how God feels about it. He hates it. He says, don't whore after other things. Come back to me. I love you. In a way no one, no thing else could ever love you. Back to me. With all your heart, says the Lord. Put aside your adultery. Well, it is a strange metaphor. You do this here to show the wounded mother. So pained are you by our sin. But we pray that um, hearing this again or afresh tonight would uh, lead us to not be indifferent about our sin. To be casual. To assume forgiveness because that's what you do. Would we be struck by how much you hate it? Would we hate it like you? Would we hate it? We don't lie because we hate to see adultery. The lies of others. The pain that it brings. Father, we wonder afresh that despite our rejection of you, your love doesn't let us go. You paid for us, took our rejection in Jesus Christ, so that we are not unloved and loved, not cut off, but you'll be. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name.